this morning we're in Leviticus 17. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it, it would have been best if we could have done Leviticus 16 and 17 together because they are, are a couple. They, they, they go together very well. But there's so much going on in Leviticus 16. As you, if you were with us last time, that sermon was plenty long enough to try to also bring in the things from Leviticus 17 would have been a bit much. And so uh, hopefully you were able to be with us last time because there's going to be some pointing back a little bit to that. But we need to kind of touch on this a little bit. So here, though Leviticus has talked about it and has pointed it out and has made reference to it. Uh, this is the most robust statement in Leviticus about life is in the blood. There's a reason why Leviticus is very pointed about what you do and don't do with the blood of a living creature, whether it's the burnt offering or a sin offering or a guilt offering or a cleansing, purifying offering or whatever it may be. Whatever it is that's going on, whatever it is that's happening, if there's blood involved, and we even saw that a couple of chapters ago with diseases and natural processes and those kinds of things. If there's blood involved, then there's an issue of life being involved. That's the mindset of the Hebrew people. That's what they're receiving from the Lord because life is found in the blood. And, uh, you know, I, I hear a lot of critics of religion in general and of uh, Judeo-Christianity in particular and the Bible most specifically, um, you know, talking about how ridiculously primitive these people were and that sort of thing. Um, yet they landed on a very profound scientific conclusion that you need your blood to live. Kind of cool how they were able to pull that off. I'm just, you know, like they got it. As pre-modern and unscientific as they were, they sort of understood that that's how this was. Hey, if you bleed something out, it's going to die. I'm, suspect, I'm suspecting then that life can be found in the presence of blood. Like, if you don't have it, you're not alive. If you do have it, you've got a much better shot of living. And so this is a remarkable insight that they had. And so the slaughtering of sacrifices while not specific to the tabernacle, is what's being addressed here in this chapter. Because the previous chapter was talking about the Day of Atonement and what all of that needed to look like. And it carried with it some of the other sacrificial ideas that we saw in the first six chapters of the book of Leviticus. Here, it's talking about the slaughtering of animals for worship while not at the tabernacle. Because if you don't read this chapter carefully enough, you might mistakenly think that they could never kill any animals in the nation of Israel unless they were at the tabernacle. And that's just not true. They ate some of their animals. And they didn't always. Amen. Thank you. At least one person here in Texas glories in the fact that they ate their animals. So um, I just I mean, you, you would have thought it had been more robust than that. But anyway, and so. Like, I'm actually taken aback. I don't know how to continue now. Um, and so they, they would slaughter their animals. They would eat their animals. And not all animals that were slaughtered and eaten by the people were animals for sacrifice. That, that's not how that worked. In fact, as you recall, if you've been with us in the first six chapters of Leviticus, most of the animals that were slaughtered for sacrifice were not eaten by the people that brought them. They were eaten by the priests As their portion, since they weren't able to raise livestock the same way everybody else was, because they didn't have the same amount of land space that everybody else had. And so if you wanted to eat meat 
as a person who was part of the nation of Israel, you had to slaughter animals that weren't for sacrifice. This chapter is not talking about that. If it's time for you to kill something, to cook it and eat it, that's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is people were making animal sacrifices for worship, not at the tabernacle. Now, in some cases, that could be they're off and they're traveling and they're away and they're not near the tabernacle and they feel that they need to make some sort of sacrifice. Complete violation of everything that we've seen in the first few chapters of Leviticus. There's a place where it's supposed to be done. There's a group of people it's supposed to be done with, namely the priest. There's a way it's supposed to be handled. There's an altar it's supposed to be done on. And so you just need to wait till you get back. Bring your sacrifices to the tabernacle. Don't worship any old way that you want to worship. There's a way that God wants you to worship. And then he brings in the issue of idolatry. Some of them, and it makes reference here to the goat demon. We're not getting into that. Please don't Google that, man. Why, you want to talk about a crazy rabbit trail when you start researching what goat demon means? It's the only place in the Hebrew Bible that this is mentioned. And when a word's only used one time in a book that big, and that's you have nothing else to go off of, people come up with some wild ideas about what that means. Let's just all agree they were committing some form of idolatry. And let's leave it at that. That just makes it a whole lot easier for us to process What's happening here? And so there's a discouragement against idolatry. Hey, you picked up in Egypt these false gods. We're, we're going to the promised land. You're only supposed to worship the one true God. And when you worship the one true God, this is how you worship him. So don't bring, hear me this morning. Listen, this is so applicable even still all these thousands of years later. Don't try to bring your act of true worship to the place where God said you should have it and continue in your false worship where God said you shouldn't have it. You can't do both. You can't keep committing idolatry and worshiping God rightly. You have to stop. And here it's declared that such is a worthy of the death penalty for this culture. You're going to continue in your idolatry. You're going to worship false gods. You're going to make sacrifices to deities that don't truly exist. You should be cut off from your people. That's the mandate that's given here. Friends, God takes very seriously worship in general. He takes very seriously us giving worship to anyone else in particular. It's a reason why in the classic Ten Commandments, it's the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty adamant. And by the way, if you violate that command, there's no way you can fulfill any of the other commands. You might do so on the surface, but not in truth. Because to fulfill the reality of God's revealed will means... To fulfill it through the glory of who God is and you as his image bearer. And so it's very, ser very serious here. And so the sacrifices that are made inappropriately were worthy of the death penalty. Blood guiltiness would fall on the one who did it. So the command here is to bring your sacrifices into the appropriate area of worship. There is a time and a place and a way that God wants his people to worship. Now, you would think, wow, we'd be able to resolve this over time, especially when Christ came. And 
sadly, and we'll touch on it just a little, but not a lot later in Leviticus, we'll have a better opportunity to, to deal with it. But, you know, in the book of in, in the church in Corinth, when Paul writes first and second Corinthians to them. One of the great accusations that he brings against them is their faulty form of worship. They've got these people speaking all these random tongues and no one to make interpretation and it's very confusing. They are not participating in the Lord's table correctly. And there's a lot of things that are happening there that are creating all sort of chaos when it comes to worship. And and Paul talks about how God desires orderliness. There's a way that God wants us to worship even in the new covenant reality. And so, friends, these problems, though old, still remain. And there's a way that God wants us to worship. And I want you to notice that this does not happen a lot in the book of Leviticus, but it happens here. On a couple of different occasions in chapter 17, it makes the statement, or from the aliens who sojourn with you. There's a lot of commands given in the book of Leviticus that are specific and directed to the nation of Israel and just the nation of Israel. This is what you, as my called out covenantal people, need to do and need to be about. This is what you need to do. Okay? Then he states, but if you're going to let people live with you who aren't you, he's, he's assuming maybe even they don't believe in me. Maybe they don't follow me the way that you follow me. There, we have clear indication that some Egyptians left with them in the story of the Exodus. They're wandering around in the wilderness with them. No real guarantees that they fully converted over to believe in the one true God the way the nation of Israel believed in the one true God. They may have picked up some people along the way. Very well could happen. If you're out in the desert by yourself, got a lot better chance of staying alive if you're out in the desert with somebody else. And so... He says, listen, if there's an alien that sojourns with you, of course, these laws aren't just for the desert, but for once you get to the promised land and get established, there's going to be people that want to come live with you. That's how it works in nations. If the alien who's sojourning with you is killing things to worship their God, it's not okay. You don't allow that. That's not how you do it. If they're going to stay with you at the minimum... They cannot do that. To what penalty? Also death penalty for them. This is a capital crime for anyone who's in this nation state. The worshiping of a false god here is worthy of death, whether you're part of the nation of Israel or not. It's a very, very profound thing. Just not for them. Anybody who aligned themselves with them. And one of the main prohibitions, apart from making false sacrifices in the wrong place in the wrong way, was the consumption of blood. Now, I know that there's a lot of people who they, they hear this, they read this, and, and they're like, you know, well, uh, well, I like my steak rare. You know, I do, I do too. Okay. There's a whole other conversation that we can have about, uh, you know, that we won't get into because we'll be way off in the weeds that we don't need to get into about if you're consuming blood or not and eating meat that's undercooked. That's a whole other conversation for another day. We need to keep this in context. This wasn't about meat preparation. This is a, this was about paganism. And most, if not all of the pagan religions at this time had some sort of part of it 
where there was the consumption of blood as the animal was bleeding out. I'm not trying to be too grotesque in here this morning. I know this makes some people uncomfortable, but that's how a lot of paganism worked back in this time period. They would make their sacrifice and just like the priest would fill a bowl with the blood of the animal as they bled the animal out and then they would use it to cover the altar and cover the clothes and cover the person who's making sacrifices and all the dirt. And then they would dump it out in certain places and cover it with earth. They never drank it or ate it or consumed it. The pagans did. And God is making it very clear. Don't do that. We do not worship the way the pagans worship. We don't take the life source from another living creature, sometimes in paganism, other humans, and consume it as part of our own life source. We don't do that. We don't do that. That is not how we properly worship at the tabernacle. And so there's this prohibition from consuming blood that is tied to the notion of atonement. Because if you'll recognize here in the middle of Leviticus chapter 17, in verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is uh, uh, the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. You are dead, to quote Paul, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But you've been made to alive together with Christ. How? Why? Because it is the blood that has life. And Christ has given his blood in death, like a sacrifice, that we might have life. We're going to get to that more fully in a second. And so it's imperative that blood be shed. So how do we see this then fulfilled in the new covenant? What do we see? Well, there's actually three different ways. One that will kind of uh, flesh, two that will flesh out, one that we'll only touch on because later in Leviticus, it'll be more important for us to flesh that out at that time. But if you would turn forward in the New Testament to the book of Acts, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15 this is the, the council at Jerusalem. All these Gentiles are being converted. They're coming into the church. It was predominantly a Jewish religion. Now what do we do with these Gentiles who aren't like us? What, what do we do? Let's use a quote. What do we do with this alien who's sojourning among us? Old Testament has some stuff to say about that. How do they fit into this new covenant reality? Because the new covenant reality to this point has just been Jewish people. And now there's lots of Gentiles who are being converted. What do, what do we, and not just Gentiles who are Judaic, you know, Judaic Gentiles, not ones who are already following the Jewish religion, but pure, raw, unadulterated pagan Gentiles who never knew anything about the one true God. They have now come into the faith. What do we do with the, their way of living and their total existence is completely opposite of ours. How does this work? How, how can we make this work? Because everything about them feels unclean to us. us and we've seen it. So how, how does this work? So the Jerusalem Council gets together and they, they want to meet. They want to talk about these things. And so they talk about how these Gentiles are coming in. And so the concluding part of the matter, just two verses, verses 19 and 20. says, therefore, it is my judgment. That we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. 
but that we write to them that they, and he gives four things, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Four things. Now, we're going to talk about it next week. We're going to, we, we will get to Leviticus 18 next week. I know a lot of you have been worried about it. You've been talking to me about it. You've been trying to explain to me, you know, why you can't make it to the service next week. Leviticus 18 is all about sexual immorality and the proper use of sexuality in marriage. And so there's four things listed at this council that basically is the summation of Leviticus 17 and 18. Don't involve yourself with idolatrous practices. Don't consume things that have been strangled to death. Don't live in fornication, sexual morality. That's chapter 18. And abstain from blood, the consumption of blood. The Jerusalem Council's finding is the summation of Leviticus 17 and 18. If you just do that, which by the way, both chapters, the alien who sojourns among you, it wasn't just for the nation of Israel, it was for everybody that was there. If you'll just do that, I think we'll get along just fine. Which is a far cry from all 613 laws that are found in the Old Testament. Far cry. Now, I want to say something about this. This is not a call for Christians to have to maintain the law of Israel. That's not what the Jerusalem Council is finding. They're not putting the yoke of the law back on converted Christians in the new covenant. There's so many things that have been written about and said and stated uh, throughout the New Testament that make it adamantly clear that we are not under the burden of the law for our salvation in any way. So that's not what the Jerusalem Council is doing here. That's not what's happening. Rather, this is an agreement for the benefit of community and peace within the early church. That's what this is. In other words, it's a fleshing out of what Paul writes about toward the end of the book of Romans. If your meat offends your brother. If your wine offends your brother. Don't eat the meat. Don't drink the wine. In other words... You need to be willing to yield some of your personal freedoms for the benefit of the other so that greater peace and unity in the faith can happen. That's basically what the findings of the Council of Jerusalem are about. Is this to be binding forever? No, it's not. And we actually find later in the New Testament that it's not binding forever. Because Paul writes an aggressive statement, both in Romans and in Corinthians, about the things supposedly contaminated with idols. He's like, an idol's nothing. And if somebody presents meat sacrifice to an idol to you when you go to eat, don't let it hurt your conscience. Just eat it and be thankful. So even just a few short years after this finding, we have writings in the New Testament saying, even some of that's not binding long term. This is a transitional agreement is what this is. Now, nowhere in the New Testament do you have the practice of blood consumption like pagans being uh, affirmed and and considered okay. That's a, a much higher moral issue. Nowhere in the New Testament do you have freedom to 
indulge in sexual immorality. That's a binding moral issue and has been since forever. Nowhere in the New Testament do you even have a conversation about things being strangled other than here. So I'm suspecting not really a a moral thing. Now, if you're that rough of a hunter, hey, so you're going hunting? Yeah, I'm going hunting. What do you use, man? 308, 30 odd sticks? No. Oh, bow? No. I just catch the animal and strangle it to death. All right. Not going hunting with you. So, just saying. So this is not binding forever. With the exception of those things that are morally against the revealed will of God. And it is morally against the revealed will of God for us to consume blood straight and to engage in sexual immorality. But things sacrificed to idols. Paul makes it really clear. He said, look. It doesn't matter. Food is food. And if somebody goes to the market and buys the cheaper food because that's all they can afford and. It's sacrificed to an idol and they present it to you and, 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 and you find out that that's what it is. Eat it anyway and just be thankful. Because there's only one true God. You just got discount because somebody believed in something fake. Just go ahead. It's fine. The second thing in the new covenant that we see being fleshed out here from Leviticus And this idea of blood and atonement is the Lord's table. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because there's some things later in Leviticus that let us kind of connect the concept of the Lord's table to the new covenant uh, based on some some teaching from the law. But I want you to note something that is radically transitional from Leviticus 17 to the new covenant and what Jesus has to say. What is absolutely forbidden in Leviticus 17, the consumption of blood. Do not drink the blood of the sacrifice. If you do, you'll die. You're worthy to be cut off from your people. Death penalty. And so then sitting around at that last Passover, Jesus takes the cup Not the blood from the lamb that would have been spilled out, that would have been cooked. He takes the cup, which has no meaningful meaning in the Old Testament. It was given traditional meaning over the years in Judaic practice. But he takes the cup of the Passover, which is crushed grapes. That's what it is. It's not animal blood. And he holds up that cup and he says... The blood of the new covenant. This is my blood of the new covenant. Given as a ransom for many. And he then commands his people to consume his blood as a demonstration of their unity with each other. But it's not animal blood. So Jesus simultaneously overthrows the teaching of Leviticus of not consuming blood while fulfilling the teaching of Leviticus by not having you consume animal blood. I'm telling y'all, his work is better in every way. It's better in every way. Aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't bring in a big old bucket of lamb blood to the last Passover and say, hey, this is my blood, this is what you need to do from now on. Praise be to God, he did not do that. 
He took an element of the Passover that had no substantial biblical meaning at all and endowed it with this incredible meaning of this is my blood. And you must. What did Jesus say? You have to eat my body and drink my blood if you want any part of me. How do I do that without violating Leviticus 17? I'm going to fill it in bread, which is not from an animal. And grapes, which is not from an animal. My body and my blood are not from blood sacrifice systems of an animal. Why? I'm the blood sacrifice and you never need another one. So I'm going to fill these things with meaning that they've never had. So that you can simultaneously have something greater than when you have in the old covenant. And still fulfill the glory and the beauty of the old covenant. Jesus is amazing. But we'll touch on some more of that later in Leviticus. And then finally, I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 3 again. We were there last week. We have to be there here again this week. Because these two chapters are connected to each other. But you remember the statement that I read in verse 11. That life is in the blood and from that life we have atonement. The atoning sacrifice is because it's a blood sacrifice and life is in the blood. And if you want your death and sin to be covered, you must have life given for you. And therefore, blood must be shed. So we get to verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. And it says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that's atoning sacrifice, in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What do we see here in Leviticus 17? It's the same notion that we saw last time in Leviticus 16. The blood sacrifice is necessary for atonement. If there is a presence of death through sin, there must be the giving of something else's life in exchange for you. Because God is just and has wrath against sin. And God cannot just look at your sin and say, oh, never mind. He would be unjust in doing so. He might be profoundly merciful in a weird way, but he would be unjust in doing so. So what does he have to do? He has to be both the just and the justifier. If anyone is to be saved, he has to justify them. But in justifying them, he still has to have his justice met. His justice cannot go unmet. His justice is a holy justice. It's a sacred justice. It's an other than justice. The violation of our sin is cosmic treason against the Most High God. We have rebelled against the image that He placed on us as those who would bear His glory in this world. 
And when we live in our sin, no matter how insignificant and small we seem it to be, we are declaring violence against the greatness of the person of God himself. And he cannot just let it slide. Because the God of the universe, the great glorious God of all creation, must remain the most glorious entity in existence. And if our sin remains unpunished, it tarnishes the glory of God himself. Friends, our sin is not a small thing. Paul declares in the book of Romans that all of creation groans under the desire to be remade from the sin that mankind has committed against their great God. The great American preacher Jonathan Edwards said that even the barking of a dog against us is a declaration of creation itself and its animosity against us for hurling it into this state of rebellion against God. And so what must be done? What must be done? God could leave all of us in our sin. And crush us under the great weight of his wrath. And cast us all from his presence. And leave us as we are condemned. And his justice would be fulfilled. Those who have committed the crime would face the punishment of their crime. He could do that with all of us. And he would be right to do so. But God. Being rich in mercy. But God, loving us even though we are his enemies. It's one of my favorite phrases in all of the New Testament. When the writers are writing about the weight of our sin compared to the mercy of God in Christ. But God. For he is slow to anger. Full of loving kindness and compassion. It's a beautiful thing. So what does it say here? What is it that must happen? God must simultaneously be just and he must also be a justifier, a demonstration of his holy mercy and his holy love and his holy compassion. And so what is it that in God's great, wise, sovereign, eternal knowledge he has done for us? He has taken the second person of the Trinity, Christ Jesus himself, and he has turned him into the priest He has turned him into the sacrifice. He has turned him into the altar, the mercy seat itself. He has turned him into the tabernacle, the location of God's presence at the sacrifice. He has turned himself into the scapegoat that flees into the wilderness. He has turned himself into the bull's flesh that gets carried outside of the camp to be consumed by fire. He turns himself, even by placing our sins in him and on him, into the offender rather than the the deliverer and also the deliverer because in his own body, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus Christ fulfilling every 
part and portion of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, yet more glorious than any animal that could ever be brought in because he has the infinite value of the divine being the God man, man in exchange for us, God in infinite display to fulfill the justice of God, delivering us from our sins and making us right with God. That's what he's done. That's what he's done. Jesus Christ himself shedding his own blood for our sins, making atonement for us. And friends, it's not without consequence and it's not without deep consideration that in the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, when they went through and began breaking the legs of those who were hanging to die, as was their custom and habit to speed along the death by crucifixion, that they noted that they thought Jesus might already be dead. So they stabbed him in his side. And it said the water came mixed out with a little bit of blood that was left. Jesus, just like the Levitical sacrifice, had all of his blood drained out. There was none left. Every drop. Atoning sacrifice. Every bit. To make God both the just. His wrath for his people has been fulfilled. And the justifier. His love for his people displayed. Friends, this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. That the blood of Jesus Christ makes atonement for our sin. And what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, first, we quit making sacrifices to pagan gods outside of the camp. All of us commit some form of idolatry at some point in our lives. That's me being kind. Usually most of it do it at some point in our day. We have something that we value more than Jesus. And we make some great sacrifice for that thing to give it a place of preeminence in our lives. It's our goat demon, if you will, whatever that means. I'm glad we don't know what it means. You can fill it in however you want to. I don't feel this way about sports, but I saw a fantastic video a long time ago. And I love sharing the story of this video to kind of prove the point. There was a guy who was talking, he was reading a passage about idolatry from the scripture as a voiceover. And there are all of these still images flowing through the video of tribesmen from faraway places doing dances and chants. And their bodies were painted and they were wearing unusual headdresses and they were they were clearly worshiping some false deity. And at the end of the reading of the passage. He said, I don't think that this is registering with an American audience very well. Let's try it again and see if we can have it strike a little closer to home. So they rewound the video 
And they restarted the reading of the passage. And instead of all those tribesmen and the weird cultural stuff and whatever, it was people at sporting events with their shirts off and their bodies painted with the number of their favorite player wearing the cheese on their head or whatever your favorite headdress happens to be for your favorite sports team and all of the different kind of stuff. And it was those images while he read the passage on idolatry until he came to the end. And he said, maybe that helps us understand it a little bit better. Now, can you have sports without idolatry? Absolutely. But friends, anything in your life that you put above Christ, your spouse, your kids, your job, your money, your education, your free time, your your privileges that you have for living in a certain country that you live in, whatever it may, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Anything that you elevate above Jesus is the worship of a false deity. And friends, because of what Christ has done for us, let's abandon that. And come to the tabernacle, which is this Christ, and worship God rightly through Him alone. And let everything else have its rightful place in our lives. That's one thing that we can do. You ask, what can we do? That's one thing we can do is we can abandon our idolatry. What else can we do? We can have overwhelmingly grateful hearts. I believe quite firmly in all of my years of pastoral ministry and experience That one of the reasons why so many Christians continue to have so many problems, whatever those problems may be, problems in relationships, problems of work ethic, problems battling sin, problems being drawn to their old temptations, problems of self-control, problems of not bearing good fruit and keeping with righteousness. You fill it in. I don't care how you fill it in. Whatever the great struggle is that you have as a Christian. There's a lot of things that play into it, but I believe in the experiences that I've seen the greatest motivator behind the failures of most Christians and their walk with the Lord and their bearing the image of Christ is that we are not properly thankful for the work that Jesus has done for us. We presume on the grace of Christ As if he had to do that for me. Friend, he didn't have to do that for you. He could have left you in your sin. Say, Philip, that's a downer. It's just true. I don't care if it's a downer. You could be lost in your sin. Separated from the Most High. With no hope of God in this world. But God. While we were yet enemies. Demonstrated his love for us in this. That Christ died for us. And all the hope. And all the joy. And all the peace. That you could ever experience in your life. Come solely and completely 
from the work that Christ has done for you. And as soon as you and I turn our eyes away from Christ as that elevated one to whom we should have the highest level of gratitude, gratitude that drives us to the place of worship and a willingness to sacrifice our own lives on his behalf, not because he makes us, not because he wants us to, but because he's worthy of it. When we turn our eyes from that, that is when everything else in the world seems to have a greater place of importance and therefore its greater place of importance importance leads us to a higher level of problems when dealing with it because it becomes our idol tying it back to my first point it's the thing that i'm now going to give my attention to i'm going to give my effort to i'm going to give my worship to i'm going to give my glory to i'm going to try and serve two masters mostly jesus but sometimes this and i'm a little less thankful for jesus right now because i'm a little more thankful for this Friends, this passage in Leviticus 17 coming on the heels of Leviticus 16 is a warning to us to not presuppose or presume on the grace of God and the atonement that we find in Jesus Christ. There is a way of salvation. And it is Christ. And if we truly look upon Christ, if we turn our eyes upon Jesus, as we sang this morning, it changes everything. And that's my question as we close this morning to you. Is you're looking at Christ changing everything. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. For the powerful atoning work of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for his shed blood that forgives us of our sins. Thank you, Father, that there's nothing greater in existence in our lives than the glory of your son, Jesus. Forgive us when we give glory to another. Help us to filter all of our existence through the glory of Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to sit.